by the time he got surgery and came out of it, he couldn't weightlift anymore. And so he had to realign and find, you know, something else, find powerlifting, find coaching in a sense, you know, fulfilled that role in his life via the coaching. And I looked at that and I said, look, man, you know, I may have a bum knee and my knee's not great and I I can still bench, you know, a good amount and deadlift a good amount, but the squats aren't going to be there. Well, I'm going to try to be the best damn coach. And so just realigning, you know, with, with that is, has made a huge role. And even now, uh, from that realign, you know, from that coaching kind of, uh, priority, it's realigned to more of that mentorship and leadership and, and business ownership priority of like, you know, let's create the, you know, the best coaching organization that we can and, and create the best value there and build a, you know, damn good community. Welcome to the Barbend Podcast, where we talk to the smartest athletes, coaches, and minds from around the world of strength. I'm your guest host, Jake Boley, and this podcast is presented by Barbend.com. Today, I'm talking to my good friend, Zach Bartell. Zach is a powerlifter, strength coach, and the owner of SoCal Powerlifting based in Irvine, California. Zach has coached hundreds of athletes and since starting SoCal Powerlifting at the age of 20, has quadrupled its size in less than five years. In today's episode, I talked to Zach about taking the leap of faith to start his own business, lessons he's learned along the way with scaling his gym, and much more. If you're currently a coach and thinking about starting your own business, then I think you'll truly love this episode. As always, we're incredibly thankful that you listen to this podcast. So if you haven't already, be sure to leave a rating and review of the Barbin podcast in your app of choice. Every month, we give away a box full of Barbin swag to one of our listeners who leaves a rating and review. So today on the podcast, we are joined by Zach Bartell. He is a powerlifter, a strength coach, and a young business owner from Southern California. Zach's a good friend of mine. I'm stoked to have him on the podcast. Zach, if you don't mind, could you share a little bit more of your origin story for the audience that might not know of who you are? Yeah, totally. So my name is Zach Bartell. Uh, I own a powerlifting gym in, in Southern California, Orange County specifically, um, you know, we, we opened back in 2017 and, you know, currently have, you know, five coaches on staff, uh, 170 members, but really it all started when, um, I was in high school. I, I was overweight my whole life. I actually, um, you know, didn't really find the weight room until I was 15 or 16. I think like most of us, right. And, um, just decided that, you know, this is what I love. And, and I fell in love with powerlifting. I did my first meet when I was 17 and knew that that would kind of just be the start of everything. Um, from there, I, uh, started going to Cal State Fullerton, kind of studied kinesiology, and I was working for uh, Chad Wesley Smith, who I'm sure many of the listeners are familiar with, and Juggernaut Training Systems. And I started uh, training, you know, myself there and and coaching there as well, and and just learning everything I could um, during that time. And that's really where I fell in love with kind of the coaching aspect of powerlifting. And you know, while maybe I wasn't destined to be the greatest powerlifter uh, or athlete, rather, um, I, I knew that I could really leave an impact and make a mark as far as the coaching goes. So, um, from, I think the years of 2015 to 2017, I worked for juggernaut, learned everything I could. And then ultimately when Chad decided to really take his, uh, gym and business completely online. I purchased some of his equipment and opened a small space in uh, Newport beach with a few racks. And, um, we really started from there and grew. Um, so that's kind of my story. And, you know, obviously there's been other things along the way, but really just finding, finding strength from a younger age and, and taking it as far as I could. 
hundred percent, man. I love that because I think what inspires me most about you is how young you are and how you've grown your yeah. business. Cause I believe we met back in 2017, right at the Barbell Brigade yeah. Open. We yeah. did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, man. And watching how you've grown and kind of how you've shifted your mentality, whether it be through social media or just talking to you directly, I think it's been yeah. amazing. So I want to dive into how you've grown your business because me personally as a coach, like I think it's so interesting that you took a leap of faith when you were so young to tackle a goal that yeah. I think a lot of coaches and trainers eventually want, right? To open their own gym. So yep. can you kind of walk us through the whole mindset and process you kind of built to kind of take that leap? And when you did, because you were young, right? You were 20 or 21 when you did so? I was, Yeah, I was 20 uh, when, we, when we opened, correct. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, yeah, share your, share your thoughts and process, man, because I <laughs> totally. think that takes a lot of confidence to do. Yeah, you know, and the the biggest thing is uh, people always ask, like, you know, when did you know it was the right time or, or what what made you make that decision? And there's never a right time, right? I, I think that's the the biggest thing and a lot of the hurdles for people who, you know, want to be entrepreneurial in the fitness realm is when to take the leap. It's, you know, and my biggest uh, piece of advice can will just always be just do it. Uh, and so I just, I realized that there was an opportunity for me to purchase some equipment, uh, you know, with uh, you know, a very lenient payment plan, thanks to Chad. And, and I saw the, I saw the opportunity in front of me and I just kind of seized it. You know, I never thought, uh, that I would own a gym. I didn't think gyms were, you know, very profitable or I, I you know, I didn't know the possibilities there. Um, but it sort of all just kind of came together. And I'd say the biggest thing when getting into fitness business, whether it's online coaching, whether it's brick and mortar gym is building to scale. Uh, and, and learning how to build a scale, you know, takes time. It takes, you know, even mentorship. And really what that is, is building out the systems so that as you do grow and as you add more clientele, um, that you're able to offload and you're able to teach your processes. So it's not just all kind of in your head. It's not just the one man show or the one woman show. It's, it can be something that you can add on team members and they can take over certain things and you guys can continue to grow. You know, if that is your goal at the end of the day, if you want it to just be you and you have your coaching business and it's, you know, so-and-so, you know, it's just you, then that's totally fine, but it's going to be really important to stay on top of, uh, you know, your stuff and make sure that you have the systems in place. I'm, I'm sure you've met tons of coaches and stuff that, you know, still take payments over Venmo and, you know, manual PayPal's and stuff, and they don't have kind of an automated billing system or they don't have agreements in place. So there's these little things here and there where there's, you know, people uh, have yet to kind of learn how to operate their coaching business or their fitness business on that more professional scale and level. And I think that's one of the biggest things that have played has, you know, played a role and an impact. And what I've been able to do is from the get go, I learned from um, very early on that if you want to grow your fitness business or coaching business, you have to uh, put in the systems in place to grow. And that meant, you know, right away having, you know, we use true coach for all of our coaching. So having that all organized in one place, automated billing systems, agreements in place, things like that to show that we were next level, a little bit more professional than maybe, you know, um, uh, another coaching business or, you know, coach. So that's, I feel like really has played the biggest role. And really just from there, it's been leadership and knowing that um, I wanted SoCal Powerlifting to transcend just me. I wanted it to be a team effort and adding on the right people and with the right positions in place to, to do that and making sure that it was good quality individuals as well. Um, so, yeah, I'd say those are the biggest things would be systems and leadership and, and building the team for sure. Gotcha. So something that kind of strikes my attention in there is what you said about systems. So yep. I think one of the toughest parts for a lot of folks is deciding when to implement certain systems. Like, is it based on volume? Is it based on yeah. your time allotment? So can you walk us through 
kind yeah. of how you navigated some of those stickier situations of when to switch from like, let's say Venmo to a more professional billing yeah, system, totally. when to switch to bringing on more people. Like, were you strapped on hours? Were you, how, how did you kind of dictate that? Yeah. So I think there's, uh, there was definitely some points in, in my life where I was like, okay, like enough is enough. I have to do X or I have to do this. And one of those things was, um, for example, communication, right? So in the beginning, I'm sure most coaches, we start by texting our clients. If they're online, they're sending us videos, you know, maybe via text message, Facebook messenger, different things like that. Um, that got very overwhelming very quickly. And the reason being is when you have that open line of communication, now it's great and it's great value. Um, but you never, uh, you never clock out. And while that has its pros and cons as an entrepreneur, you get to, you know, set your own schedule and, and work the day you want. It can, it can lead to a lot of anxiety. And it, it, that's what it did to me was, you know, I had, a, I think I had gotten roughly a 20, 30 clients that maybe this was back in, this was back in 2017, I think, um, or late 2017, early 2018, where I was, uh, still texting clients and stuff. And, and what I realized was I, I couldn't do it anymore. I'd wake up to 20 videos on my phone. And it would make me anxious. I'd be in a movie, maybe on a date or something. And I'd get, you know, texts from clients and I felt like I needed to respond immediately. And while that's all good, um, it's, it's really not healthy, uh, as, as the coach. And so setting those boundaries now there there's never going to be a, you know, a set like, okay, at, at 10 clients, you do this and at 20 clients, you do this and 30, you know, so on and so forth. Um, but what I would recommend and you know, what I've tried to mentor other coaches that are outside of, so, you know, my own business and even just in the industry is, um, you start, just start now. Uh, and you know, a lot of people are afraid of, Oh, if I don't allow my clients to text me, like they won't think I care. Um, that's not true at all. Uh, 100% not true. Um, they, people respect your boundaries and, and I guarantee uh, they will. And the other thing is, yeah, as far as the payment stuff goes, you know, I think the knee jerk reaction there is let's talk taxes. Uh, now, if it's through, let's say, an automated business prof or PayPal business or whatever it is, uh, yeah, that's tracked and, and you, you would need to pay taxes on that. But to my argument um, on that is, look, you're going to miss less payments. It's going to be more professional and you'll probably uh, streamline the business a bit better and grow a little faster. Because at the end of the day, you don't want to have to send 20 Venmo requests every month um, to you know clients. It's it, it definitely lacks the professionalism that I think uh, we really need to kind of uphold as a standard for for coaching and coaching businesses. Um, so I'd say from the get go, just start now. Even if you just have five clients, create you know create your your business. Whether it's a sole prop, whether you want to form an LLC, if you really want to go all in on this thing, do it now. Why not? Right? Um, and and then, you know, find the automated billing system that, you, you know, you like the most for many. That's PayPal business. A lot of people use that. Uh, a lot of big coaching companies use that. Um, and find a platform for coaching that you like. If that is Google, you know, Drive and Google Sheets, if you, you're a Sheets guy or a gal, do it. You know, if that's True Coach or Train Heroic or whatever other platform, do it. But I would definitely stress the importance of finding those programs and software that work really, really well for you and doing it now because um, you should treat your five clients like you have 30 and you should treat your 30 clients like you have five. Um, cause what will happen along the way is if you do, if you don't input those systems and you start to grow and you go from five to 10 to 20, et cetera, you're going to hit those marks of I'm, I'm getting anxiety. I'm, you know, I'm having problems. My retention is down things like that. And so I'd say, Hey, get in front of those problems now and take the leap, even if it's a little bit uncomfortable and just, and, and, and do that stuff. Yeah. I love that. I actually like, I, I resonate with that so hard because I think 
outside of like Barbin and stuff, like I manage 12 clients and that's where I cap myself because anytime I try to do more, man, I just have that exact same kind of panic and yeah. whatever else that you've been talking about, like that anxiety, it's like always being on, yeah. on, on, never breaking. So I love that. So going off of all of that, I guess my biggest questions for you are when you were going through implementing these processes, what are some of the lessons you've learned along the way? Like, have you made a bad call when you've tried to implement something new and have you overcorrected and yeah. how have you kind of done that? Can you give us a couple examples of times you've done that maybe? Yeah, totally. So there's nothing that glares right out at me as, oh man, that was a mistake. But I will say there was definitely a uh, you know, a learning curve in the sense of, you know, the clients I were, I was texting and had that communication with, you know, setting those new boundaries can be tougher. It's easier to set the boundaries with a client that you've never coached before. And you bring them on and just explain that this is the protocol versus a client that you've been texting every single day for the last year. Now you're saying, Hey man, um, you know, I need you to email me these things, or I need you to post on true coach or message me here, you know, and finding a way to phrase that. So they feel like they, you know, are, are still taken care of. That can be tough. Honestly, one of the bigger uh, roadblocks uh, that I found kind of at my level where we're at is we implemented more long-term agreements and contracts at the, at the gym. And we we implemented those back in June, this last June. And that was a huge leap of faith for me because in my mind, I'm like, man, who's going to want to sign up for 12 months? Like, uh, I was I was afraid. I was afraid we, we, people were going to turn around and walk out when they, when they, you know, found that they had to either sign up for six or 12 months or pay a little bit more, right? And um, we ultimately... It's, it's one of those things. I think once you just hop in and go for it, you, all your insecurities vanish because then you see, you see it work. You see the success as a reason, um, that these, that these systems are in place as a reason people do this. Um, and you, and you'll see that right in front of you. Um, as far as the billing and stuff goes, I mean, honestly, like there's no, there's no reason why, you know, someone can't create like a PayPal business or, or something like that. Um, so there was really no issues on that end, but I'd say as far as the communication goes, yeah, sometimes setting those standards can be tough, but just finding that groove, uh, is really important. And the, the other thing is being really aware of your true capacity, uh, as far as like clientele goes. I mean, honestly, at one point I, I was coaching, I think it was like I had 64 clients under me. Um, and yeah, like at that point, my quality of work was not where I wanted it to be. And I knew that right away. And I tried to be aware. One of my biggest insecurities was, um, you know, offloading some of my personal clients to some of our other coaches in house. That was really hard for me. Um, but I realized, you know, then and and looking back now, I should have done that a long time before that because I, I did start to have you know people leave because I wasn't able to give them the attention that they frankly deserve or that I was able to give them um, before that. And that was definitely a very, very hard thing that I went through. And so my advice to someone would be before you get to that point, be aware of what your capacity should be. And if you do, you know, are in a, you know, create your own coaching company and have other coaches under you, be aware that to have your business scale and to have the company grow and, and prosper itself and have those other coaches prosper, you're going to need to have time to do that. And that might mean lowering your roster a little bit. Right. And, and, you know, having those hard conversations with clients that you, that you love and care about that, Hey, at this moment in my, in, in where we're at, this, this person can do a better job than I can. And that took a lot of heart and, and, and guts on my end. And I, I waited a little too long to do that for sure. That was one of the things that definitely pops out in my mind. Gotcha. And when you kind of have those moments of self-reflection, when you recognize when you're at your cap, because I think a lot of coaches go through this, something similar. And a lot of trainers do that yeah. as well, where they realize like, 
holy crap, like I am so bogged down right now. What do I do? Yeah. Did you reach out to mentors to talk about it? Or how did you go through that self-reflection process? Because I yeah. think that's huge is being able to recognize, take a step back, and then kind of almost rechange, like change your course pretty much to be more aligned with what you want to do. So can you walk us through some of that? Yeah, you know, it's tough because there's really no right answer to any of this stuff. Um, you know, and I'm, I, I go based on feel for a lot of things. Uh, just that's kind of how I operate. That's how I am. Um, but yeah, I mean, I definitely talked to uh, some mentors and, and people kind of in the field, people who I looked up to. And, and I realized that the feelings that I were feeling were very valid, one. Um, and two, that the, the clients that, uh, you know, I were, had to have these conversations with, you know, if they really care, they're, they're going to stick around and, and be grateful that, that, uh, that you, you know, did have those conversations and, and move them over be before it got to a point where you just really couldn't put in the energy and effort. And they're going to be grateful when they see the quality of work and the value, uh, that that other coach or, you know, has to give to them and realize that that's totally okay. Um, it, you know, it's, it is, it's just tough because yeah, there is no right, right or wrong answer. Um, you just sort of have to go by feel. And, you know, to that I would probably just say, as you are scaling and growing, just be very aware of kind of where your client load is at and the quality of your work. If you catch yourself getting lazy on certain things, maybe copying and pasting some blocks a little bit too much, not editing things enough or your feedback on videos, you know, isn't, isn't as good. Um, just be aware of those things and take note. And because at the end of the day, people are going to notice. Uh, and if you want to uphold your standard, um, it's, it's really important that you, that you do that and you, and you lead by example there. So I was starting to catch myself. Yeah. Getting a little bit too lazy on, on programming because I was like, so worried about 10 other things. I was worried about keeping, you know, the roof over our head and the rent covered and all these other things that, you know, in my mind at the time were, were more important, right? Because if we don't have a place to lift, then what's the coaching mean anyway? Um, and, you know, I realized that the, the time I was spending on the coaching and programming with that amount of client load, I, it, it, it was, it should, wasn't what it should be. And so, you know, from there, I, I now have under just under like 20 clients and operating way more smoothly, putting in my 110% effort, uh, on both, you know, the client side and the operation side and able to handle it a lot better. But like I said, just sum that up. There's just, there's really no right answer. You really just have to be very aware. Gotcha. So kind of stemming from that, I was listening to your podcast with Juggernaut. I believe it was about a week or two ago to do some research mm -hmm. for this. And I loved the part where you were talking about shifting from having a full on focus on training to more of a yeah. gym owner slash coach. And it sounds like a yeah. lot of what you just talked about kind of segue into that. So I wanted to ask you, like, when did you decide that all right, I need to take more of my attention from my own personal training and shift yeah. that into growing this and prospering this and lifting up other coaches and athletes. Yeah. So, well, one of the biggest things, and if you listen to that podcast, you, you'll know, uh, I like my knee injury history and stuff. Uh, so just to give the listeners kind of background on that, you know, when I, I grew up dislocating my, my kneecap quite a lot, uh, playing football in high school, I, I probably, you know, had like in one year I had like eight kneecap dislocations and what, what that did was it didn't pop right back in place. It was all good. Um, but what happened was then the kneecap started sitting out a little bit laterally. And, you know, as I got into powerlifting, um, really just started kind of degrading that cartilage in that left knee, um, to the point where the, the knee had very, very little cartilage left and it was extremely painful. So my, just some of my history is like my best squat 
came in uh, April of 2017. And after that, things just went really downhill. I finally found a good doctor uh, to, to perform a surgery on me. And I, I had surgery a little over a year ago, uh, November of 2018. Um, and so kind of what that did was I, I had to reshift my focus. I had to come to the realization that, you know, with this knee thing, even if I got surgery, which the, the surgery is great and, you know, it's, it's better, but still not, you know, hundred percent. I, I'm not going to be the best powerlifter and, and me and my mind and the way I work is I want to be the best at everything I do. I'm, I'm very, very competitive person. And so I realized that, okay, well, I'm not going to be a Russ Swole, right? I'm not going to be a John Hack. There's just, it's just not going to happen. Um, but you know what I can do? I can be the best damn coach. There's nothing stopping me, you know, except my work ethic and my ability to learn and adapt. And so I just took ownership of that. I was like, okay, if I can't be the best powerlifter, what can I be? And that was that was coaching. And I really and I could keep my hand in powerlifting and keep my, you know, keep in it by coaching and living vicariously through my lifters, even if you know I uh, couldn't lift myself. Honestly, and one of the uh, the biggest uh, kind of influences in that was, you know, Max Ada. And for those that kind of know his history of, you know, he broke his wrist, uh, weightlifting and didn't get surgery on it for, I think a year where his lunate bone in his wrist went necrotic. And by the time he got surgery and came out of it, he couldn't weightlift anymore. And so he had to realign and find, you know, something else, find powerlifting, find coaching in a sense, you know, v fulfilled that role in his life via the coaching. And I looked at that and I said, look, man, you know, I may have a bum knee and my knee's not great and I, I can still bench, you know, a good amount and deadlift a good amount, but the squats aren't going to be there. Well, I'm going to try to be the best damn coach. And so just realigning, you know, with, with that is, has made a huge role. And even now, uh, from that realign, you know, from that coaching kind of, uh, priority, it's realigned to more of that mentorship and leadership and, and business ownership priority of like, you know, let's create the, you know, the best coaching organization that we can and, and create the best value there and build a, you know, damn good community. So, that's definitely hard. And anyone who's gone through injury, uh, like, you know, serious injury or, uh, debilitating, you know, injury in lifting and, you know, they've had to, they've been sidelined either for X amount of time or, you know, forever to a certain extent, uh, you'll, you'll find a lot of those people, you know, have had to, uh, stop kind of, um, identifying themselves as that thing. Like I was Zach, the powerlifter. That was who I was for like five years. I identified as Zach, the powerlifter. I do powerlifting meets. I'm good at it. This is what I do. And I had to sort of give that up in the sense and re-identify as I'm more than Zach, the powerlifter. I'm Zach, the coach. I'm Zach, the brother. I'm Zach, the student, you know, all these other things that I can put my hundred percent into, um, so that I didn't feel like all was lost and it was all over. So really it's just, it's all about perspective. Um, and yeah, because at the end of the day, you're not going to be able to powerlift forever. You're not going to be able to do CrossFit forever. You're not going to be able to weightlift forever. It's just it, those type of sports just aren't lifelong sports. Uh, and so identifying as other things and finding other ways to kind of you know, keep in it and, and stay focused and help others, I think has been a huge, uh, played a huge role in kind of my success and growth, you know, both in a, on a personal level and professional level. Gotcha. So I want to ask you a little bit more about coaching and how you just totally. reference like building your business to be the best type of coaching. So when it comes to blending different coaching methodologies, yeah. how do you do that and how do you approach it? Is it with trial and error? Is it from you yeah. trying things? Because I think that's always so interesting to ask other trainers and coaches and athletes because everybody kind of has their take on what works best, right? So I want to know yeah, totally. how, how you blend different methodologies and kind of how you go about doing so. 
Yeah, totally. So I think um, as far as coaching philosophies go, just in general, right? Um, a lot of coaches, I think the biggest uh, the people that make the biggest impact are going to be those coaches, coaches along the way. I've been extremely fortunate to work with some, you know, awesome coaches to the likes of, you know, Chad, Wesley Smith, Max Feta, uh, Eric Bodhorn, um, all different levels uh, of kind of, and different kind of somewhat of a different philosophy there too. And I've been able to kind of take that anecdotal experience. I think a lot of coaches take that anecdotal experience with, you know, stuff they've done and apply it and add their own spin on it, you know, in combination with kind of the scientific literature where things are at. And I think that's really important is to, you know, always stay on your toes and never, uh, never stop wanting to learn. Um, you know, continuing to read articles, continuing to kind of see what's new and what's out there and not getting stuck with, oh, this is my way. This is how I do this, how I've been doing it for 10 to 20 years. Um, you know, so I know what I'm doing. I can't tell you how many clients have had come in the door that are, you know, quote unquote, like old school that have been lifting for 20 years and they're still doing, um, you know, five, three, one or whatever it is when, uh, we should really be taking maybe a little bit of a higher volume approach there, or you know, different things like that. So, I'd say as far as philosophies go, I'm, I definitely have taken a piece from everyone who I've worked with along the way, along with, you know, what I've learned in school, what I've learned from the literature, you know, other great coaches online, like Alberto Nunez, Greg Knuckles, Eric Helms, um, and just apply that. And the other thing is too, I mean, you're never going to, it, there's never a right or wrong answer when it comes to programming, it, you know, believe it or not, it's, it should be individualized. And a lot of that has to do with, uh, the, you know, the given lifter, what kind of lifter they are, what their MRV is, what, what kind of, you know, what they can handle, how, their life stress, their balance. There's so many things that play there. And that's why I can't stress the importance enough to, if you really want the highest quality of coaching, it's important to limit your roster, right? Because, you know, when you get into those upper echelons of, of higher client loads, you just, you can't be on top of it like you should. Uh, and so, yeah, as far as philosophies go, of course, there's going to be little takeaways. There's going to be some anecdotal experience there, stuff I've gone through, stuff I've learned. Um, and it's just a kind of a culmination of all of that uh, and bringing it together to to fit that given client and learning it along the way. Uh, I like to say, you know, programming is a science experiment. And when you're working with a client, the longer you work with them, the better the programming should get because you start to understand what that client responds to, how their body responds, how should they peak, you know, all these different things. How's the recovery? And just optimizing little things as you go, changing one variable at a time so you can really elicit the change and see where that change came from versus just completely, you know, trashing that current methodology, throwing in a new one and seeing, oh, does Westside work for this person? No. Okay, does 531 work? Does 5, but, you know, and just constantly changing what that protocol is. Let's manipulate a little, you know, a little bit of at a time uh, and, and, and see what can work there. I dig that. That's um, I think yeah. Ben Polak wrote an article on us similar to that in nature, just pretty, pretty much talking about like changing little things as you go. Yep. But I do have a question on shifting kind of structure for different clients, right? So let's mm -hmm. say a client responds very well to volume, but it, you don't recognize that right away, right? So how long yeah. do you give them a program or work with them before you start to try a little bit more of like the macro structuring of the program? Yeah. You know, I I'd say probably roughly 12 to 16 weeks going through, you know, a few meso cycles uh, of training and, and different blocks of periodization. Um, because yeah, you won't be able to tell, you know, if you take someone through a hypertrophy block and they respond great, um, you know, maybe that person just wasn't doing a lot of volume before. And so therefore we're listing a ton of change because this is, this is very new for them and they're making tons of adaptations. So I would say, t I like to take through lifters through, you know, 12 to 16 weeks of training, you know, into a meet before really making changes. I had a lifter who 
Um, he's one of my coaches on staff actually. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote his, uh, training block into a meet, you know, last year, last spring, he's very, very jacked, very lean. Um, and I kind of threw him into the ringer thinking, oh man, this Jack, this guy's jacked. He's been doing, probably been doing all this volume. He kind of gave me his training history, but I realized like, you know, not everyone can, can handle, you know, that amount. And, and so it, it's really just, it is trial and error and, and knowing kind of that explaining that to them too, and communicating like, Hey, look, um, this is your block. This is where we're starting out. And I'm going to continue to kind of adapt and, and make a necessary adjustments to this as we go along. Um, and just know that it's just going to keep getting better and better, but yeah, I'd give it, I'd give it at least eight, 12 to, to 16 weeks before making major changes. Um, so let's say someone has a meet in, in three months or, or 12 weeks from now, taking them through kind of what you would assume that block should be based on if they are X amount of body weight and, you know, this gender and this training history, taking them through that and then making those changes afterwards and seeing kind of what elicits the best change and making your decisions from there. It takes time, but if you communicate that to lifters, say, Hey, you know what? Um, it's, you know, it's possible that we don't see the results we maybe desire at first as we kind of learn you and, you know, and how you respond. But I guarantee that as we continue to adapt and change, we're going to see those results. We're going to see it dramatically. I can't tell you how many lifters I've had where I've taken them through their first meat prep and we didn't hit, you know, massive PRs. They, you know, these are more intermediate and advanced lifters, right? So there's less newbie gains to be had there. Uh, and we didn't hit maybe the the PRs we wanted, or maybe we PR'd the squat, but kind of matched the bench and the deadlift. And just explaining that the baby wins are wins, and that as you know, this is just a learning experience for us to grow and adapt the programming. And then that next meet, they absolutely crush it because we made the necessary changes. Gotcha. Yeah, I was going to ask how you kind of navigate that because with longer term goals and smaller, tiny, let's call them micro changes, it's I feel like it's hard to display the um, clients and trainees that. Look, it's yeah. about the long game here. and But at the end of the day, it's yeah. also like when you're coaching and training, it's also yeah. an experience, right? You're selling them yep. on the benefits that it holds, but you also need to have them feeling like they're getting a ton of work in. So how do you yeah. navigate that? And like, I know you mentioned that you make sure you vocalize and explain exactly your processes yeah. and how it's going to be a long game effort. But do you have yeah. any more acute kind of um, tools that you pull out of your toolbox to help clients see like, hey... This is why we're doing this. This is what's going to stay consistent when you have those clients yeah. that might want to jump or they're getting a little bit fidgety because they don't feel like they're doing yeah. enough. Yeah. What I'd say, you know, depending on kind of your structure, as far as your coaching goes, whether you have regular, you know, if it's online, whether you have regular like Skype meetings or Zoom meetings or calls, things like that, um, explain the macro, right? And maybe this client just signs up, maybe they're on a month to month plan with you and, um, you know, they're working with you and they, they're prepping for this next meet. Um, the way I advise my coaches and the way we go about things is just from the get go, we treat the client like they're going to be around for a year. Uh, we just assume it, right? And that way it makes our job better and easier because then we're able to put in that effort. So I've I've whipped out a macro plan of, you know, with with clients and said, hey, here's your next year. These are the meets we're gonna do. Here's how your training is going to probably look, right? Uh to these meets and how we're gonna, you know, change things as we go along, get a little bit more sports specific as we get closer to the bigger meets, uh, things like that. And really just communicate that, hey, we may see less progress here to here. Um, because we're working on these other adaptations, maybe it's hypertrophy, maybe it's increasing, you know, general, general strength and general physical preparedness. Um, and, and, you know, making sure you're communicating the different, uh, goals of the given block, because not every block is going to be, Hey, let's get massively strong and make all the progress, right? Some of it's going to be, Hey, let's add muscle mass. Hey, we're going to be on a 
a cut here. So now we're going to be on a caloric deficit. So maybe the results are going to be a little bit less. Um, so I would just say have regular communication with the client, be completely transparent with what you're doing, um, you know, be straightforward and take a long-term approach. Assume they're going to be around for a while and treat them like they are. And you might find that they just stick around, right? I've had very few clients uh, quit after, you know, one training block or, you know, cycle because they didn't see the results they wanted because I've, I've tried to do my absolute best to say, hey, this is a long-term game. Um, powerlifting is a long-term sport and the way to stay in this a long time is to think of the macro perspective. And honestly, I've, I've also been able to use kind of my personal, um, experience when it comes to that as well. If I used to just train so hard, I mean, um, just overtrain and, uh, you know, gym twice a day doing 10 by tens on squat, just all of the, all the volume. Cause I thought working hard is, is the answer. Uh, and you know, it's just important to communicate, uh, that it's not. And I find this being a, a little bit more of an issue with younger lifters, because you find if you've ever coached like a 16, 17, you know, 18 to, or just a junior lifter, right. Um, those, they are very, uh, just like any, any, you know, young person, just, they, they want it all now they want it yesterday. Uh, and so just, uh, explaining that look like we're not going to squat 700 pounds tomorrow. It's, it's not realistic, but in five years, yeah, that's, that's a possibility. You squat 500 pounds now, five years of good training, staying on top of it, staying injury free, we can crush that, you know? And so just, just really relaying that this is a long-term sport and to stay in it a long time, you have to train smart, uh, and, and showing them the plan in front of them, a tangible plan that's well thought out versus just being like, uh, just, just stay in the pocket, you know, just, just hold on tight. Uh, I think is, is very important. I love that. I don't think I I don't think a lot of coaches show enough visuals when it comes to that yeah. long term approach, and I I think that's awesome. Do you ever show, yeah. let's say, other clients that you've had from their longer term like macro plans, and do you kind of relay messages in that way? Yeah, so I have before. I I definitely should do it more often. So I'm not I'm not going to be one to you know be all high and mighty and be like, oh man, like I've got a macro you know plan for every single client I've ever coached and everyone I'm coaching. Um, but the clients who have showed a little bit more, um, you know, reservations or, or anxiousness when it comes to their training or their, their progress, I definitely have taken the time out to lay out the plan so that they can see the why behind what we're doing, because not everyone's going to be a soldier. Not everyone's going to see the plan and just be able to just go out there and execute it and have this blind, like quote unquote blind trust. A lot of people would need to see kind of uh, the why behind the what. And so as a coach, it is your job to know the why and to be able to explain the why. I think that's very important. And what you'll find is you get a lot more buy-in there. Uh, and, and therefore you'll probably see better results as well. Gotcha. Um, so one of the articles you wrote, I'm going to take a quick transition because I want to pick your mind on coaching a little bit while we're on the topic of coaching. But one of the articles you wrote for us, I absolutely loved, and that was hypertrophy for power lifters. And I think, I think as, um, as our knowledge continues to grow in the sport and in strength sports in general, I think a lot of people are seeing stock and doing a lot of hypertrophy work for powerlifting just in terms of longevity. So I would love for you to kind of walk us through your thought process with how you program hypertrophy lifting for both beginner, intermediate, and advanced lifters and how that scale kind of shifts in terms of how much work you dole out for each population. 
Yeah. Yeah. So totally. Um, so as far as like, uh, programming hypertrophy for, for di- lifters of kind of different States, whether they're beginner, advanced, intermediate, et cetera, um, your, your beginner lifters are always going to need more and they're going to respond to more. Um, we can assume most beginning lifters are less jacked, right? I, I use that word quite a bit in that article. Uh, and you know, we know that the more jacked we are, we can assume we're probably going to be stronger, um, and so, yeah, getting those beginning lifters on more hypertrophy blocks. So maybe that's a ratio of two hypertrophy blocks to one strength block to one peaking block. And maybe on an intermediate lifter, that's going to be one hypertrophy block to one strength, you know, in a peak or, and maybe on that advanced lifter, that's going to be a ratio of more strength blocks, maybe one tr- hypertrophy block to one strength block. Um, it, it's gonna, it's gonna shift based on the person because you may have an advanced lifter that, uh, Maybe they are, they filled out their weight class and they're killing it, but we've seen, been a little stagnant. Maybe it's time to fill out the new weight class above that. Maybe you're going from 52 kilos to 57. Uh, and so we need to do more hypertrophy because now we've got to build more muscle mass on the frame. So it is highly individual. Um, but I'd say generally we can assume that the, the beginning lifters need to do more hypertrophy. And I think that is uh, definitely a kind of mistake or, or it's, not, it's, not, um, it's not done enough kind of in our, in today's day and age and, and with training, a lot of, uh, lifters, they pull plans offline, you know, they'll pull a five by five, a strong list, whatever it is. And they don't understand the importance of the hypertrophy because they just want to lift heavy all the time. And it's, it's definitely hard to communicate that importance of, Hey, you know what? Like you signed up for powerlifting coaching. I know, but we're going to do some bodybuilding, you know, with some powerlifting focus for quite some time. Uh, so just give me like, a, you know, it comes down to communication, but, uh, at the end of the day, I'd say, uh, yeah, the more beginner you are, the more hypertrophy you should be doing. And the more advanced you are, the less that you probably need because you've already, you're already fairly, you know, jacked. Yeah. I was going to say, it's funny watching. Well, when you look at like free programs online, you just see compound movements in every single day and it's like, all right, well, that's cool and all, but when we yeah. have somebody who's just learning how to squat, why are we just going to have them just squat and not build everything yeah. else up around it? Like build strong glutes, focus on the core, focus well, yeah. on everything and, that assists. And to, to go along with that too, you know, I like to explain it this way. And I actually hosted a small seminar yesterday for uh, a college class, a local college class. And, you know, I talked about kind of, we, we taught a lot of technique and we changed a lot of things. And I just said, look, um, you know, I don't, what I don't want you to do is take this new technique, go into the gym and max out or go in the gym and do sets of three. I want you to go in the gym and do four sets of eight. I want you to go in the gym and do, you know, five sets of six or whatever it is, because that gives you 30 plus opportunities to get better and, and, you know, grease that groove and learn that technique. If we, if we're, if we're a beginning lifter and we're learning a new technique that, you know, we just went over uh, and we're doing three by three, well, dude, that's nine reps, man. Like that's not a lot of time to, to really practice and, and, you know, uh, actually nail it versus doing, you know, uh, a four by eight, that's 32 reps now. Like think about how much more we get out of that. So that, the, it, not only are we getting hypertrophy adaptations, but the, the technical adaptations are huge as well. hundred percent. I think that a lot of people write off hypertrophy as just being good for building mass. But I mean, reality, it's like what you just said, it's greasing the groove. It's building efficiency yep. over and over with the specificity of that movement. Um, cool, man. So going off of that, I have one more question for you on hypertrophy. I want to hear your thoughts on like, let's just say a normal, like squat focused leg day, right? What does a normal hypertrophy day look for, for your clients and how you coach? Totally. So yeah, we typically, I mean, let's assume it's tough because it's, it is very individual. So let's assume this person trains five days a week where I'm going to also assume they're 170 to 190 pound kind of male. Um, that person's probably going to squat twice a week. 
uh, let's say they're in hypertrophy block, they're going to squat twice a week. So both of those, those leg days have squats in them because again, we're, we want to take into account specificity. Um, now one day might be a little bit heavier and one day might be a little bit lighter and one day might be a little bit more leg accessory, uh, dominant. So let's assume, okay. So we do maybe like a four by eight, uh, you know, at, uh, let's call it 60 to 70%, depending on kind of where they're at. Then we might do one exercise. Maybe, uh, we do like 1.5 squats where we come out of the hole, go back down, come all the way up. Uh, maybe we do like sets of, you know, five or six there. So we're getting, you know, a ton of leg hypertrophy there. Then we'd probably move on to leg press or belt squats for, you know, sets of 12 to 15, depending on kind of what block they're in. And then from there, maybe we'll do some unilateral work. Maybe it's Bulgarian split squats or walking lunges or step ups. Um, and that's usually quite a bit of stimulus for the quads, um, for most people. Um, I'd say four, four to five, you know, quad exercises are, are good on that end. Maybe we'll do one more back movement that day, but they're probably going to be gassed from all the squat work as is. Um, but again, it really depends you know, it depends on, you know, the size strength. And it also depends on, you know, how much time that lifter has to train because, you know, some people take forever to do a hypertrophy squat workout. They need two to three hours and some, you know, not everyone can get that done in an hour, hour and a half. And maybe they don't have two hours or three hours to kill in the gym. So, uh, we would then, you know, at that point, if they, they're crutched for time, maybe do a little bit more squatting, but still in those higher rep ranges, just to get those hypertrophy adaptations. I love it. I love the visual that yeah. you just laid out because I think that can totally. be tricky for a lot of folks, especially when writing their own programs. So I want to ask you, when building that workout day, how do you structure accessories that follow the primary movement? Is it based on mm-hmm. energy allotment? Is it based on basic load on the body? Like, how do you structure that? Because I know like how I structure my accessories, but I totally. really want to hear how you like to do so with your methodologies. Yeah. Well, yeah. So definitely as far as like the energy allotment goes, you know, you're going to use more energy on the multi-joint movements. So, you know, your squats and stuff again, huge, right. But then from there doing that, that first, uh, variation movement, again, that's going to be more taxing than, you know, doing pin squats to parallel are going to be more exhausting to your body, uh, than doing walking lunges. So we, we kind of do it in order of that by the, by the time that, uh, that individual gets to those walking lunges, they can still execute it because it's, it's not so much stimulus that they can't handle it anymore, that they're too tired, but it's enough to, you know, elicit the, the, the quad hypertrophy. So yeah, we do structure it that way. Um, it, it really is based on fatigue and, and even intra workout fatigue of how, you know, how, how will that person be able to handle it? And everyone's a little bit different. I've, I have some people that maybe they'll do that a four by eight on the squats. They'll do their variation. They can only handle one accessory and they cannot do anything more. The quads are cramping. They're done. Um, and so everyone's a little bit different. Everyone's in a little bit different shape. Uh, and, and you just have to kind of pick, pick and choose from there. But yeah, I'd say, you know, those multi-joint movements first, obviously. And then we get into more of those single joint um, and like kind of more unilateral stuff with less load uh, are going to be uh, towards the end there. Do you have any tips for folks who are programming for themselves when it comes mm-hmm. to being objective enough to know your limits? Like, is it based yeah. on, because I think a trap that a lot of beginners, especially coaches can fall into is yeah. doing too much and thinking that pushing through is the ticket when in reality, it's your body actually signaling, Hey, like this is my cap for what we've done with volume and intensity for today. So do you have any yeah. tips? Do you have any tips well, there? Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. My biggest tip is going to be hire a coach. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, I know. Right. But, but jokes aside there, well, one, you know, hiring a coach is great just because, you know, they're there. It takes that subjectivity out of it. Now, 
uh, someone else is writing the plan and you go in and execute. And also uh, if you are a coach yourself, it gives you learning opportunities. I still work with a coach to this day. You know, I've gone through different periods of time where I program for myself, but you know, I find that either I work too hard, I don't work hard enough. And there's really no middle ground there. Um, but yeah, if you do program for yourself, it really is important to listen to your body and not just, you know, uh, free for all in it all the time, have a good structure, have weights programmed out in advance and don't, you know, think about yourself as a client, think about what you you would tell a client to do. Um, you know, if, and if you have, let's say a five, you know, five by five at a given weight, uh, and you feel great that day and you want to do 10 to 15 to 20 pounds more, what would you tell your client? You'd probably say no. You'd probably talk about the long-term plan. You'd probably say, hey, look, we're going to go heavier next week anyway, so let's not do this now. Um, and try to treat yourself like a client as much as you can. You know, in, if you don't, yeah, if you don't have the funds to hire a coach or, you know, you aren't following a plan that, you know, and you're just following a plan that's written for you, it's going to be tough. But the best way would just be stay object as objective as possible. Write the plan in advance and don't pick your weights on the fly. I love that. Um, man, that pretty much wraps up our chat. I do want to ask you cool. one Final question to cap this podcast. I think this has been a very insightful podcast when it comes to totally. building a business and fitness, but also just some of your takes on coaching itself. Yeah. But my final question for you, Zach, is in all of your years of training and building a business, what has been the best piece of advice you've ever received from a mentor or somebody that you look up to? Yeah. Um, you know, honestly, I'd say bet on yourself. Um, you know, it's something I've talked about on my Instagram, but the, the best bet with the most return you'll ever make is, is betting on yourself and realizing that, um, you can, your work ethic is under your control and your ability to learn and adapt is under your control. And you can make those decisions, um, to, to influence the, you know, the outcomes that you want. And so, yeah, if you have been mulling over going out on your own and, um, you know, starting your own thing or breaking off and, and, you know, jumping into coaching full time, just do it. There is no right time. Um, you're not going to feel comfortable. I still don't feel comfortable um, because everything's always new all the time. We're always growing to different levels and stuff. And and so just under, get comfortable being uncomfortable and really and really bet on yourself there. I think that's the the greatest gamble you'll ever make. Um, and you know and just put it put in the work. Dude, I appreciate your time. I love that advice, and that's something that I think that everybody can use, whether you're in fitness or out of it. I appreciate the time, Zach, and we look forward to having you back on eventually, hopefully in maybe middle 2020. Awesome, man. Yeah, I really appreciate being on. I hope um, all you listeners like had some good takeaways here, and I'm, I'm super excited. Have a good one, Zach. Cool, man. Have a good one.